warm welcome. It's such a blessing to be here and to share with you about Jesus, the Passover lamb, especially as we think this week about the Holy Week theme and what happened in the first century, reading the gospel accounts and even reading about Jesus with his disciples as he met with them for a Passover meal. We read in Luke chapter 22 about Jesus's Passover meal with the disciples. Perhaps you recall these words of instruction that then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Then they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said, behold, you will have entered the city or when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Perhaps you even remember some famous Christian art like this piece that is based off a da Vinci piece that isn't near as vivid in its original colors. But Jesus and the disciples eating the Passover meal, the famous painting of the Last Supper. Might I suggest to you perhaps it looked a little more like this, where they were in a dimly lit upper room and probably on the ground reclining for Passover on, on small table-like areas in sort of a horseshoe shape called a triclinium, which was common in the Greco-Roman world. And there they ate this meal. Why did they do it? Well, because being Jewish, they were commanded to do so already back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And we read about it also in later scriptures as well, the celebration of the Passover. It comes from this famous chapter in the book of Leviticus, which told the duties of the priests and the instructions for the various sacrifices they were to make. In fact, in chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus, you have the whole calendar year of Israel spelled out with the first observance, if you will, the first holiday, the first time that was set apart for God to meet with the Israelites being right here in chapter 23, verses 4 through 8, the description of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then, on the fifteenth day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no, uh, you shall not do any laborious work. Now you might ask, why is it that they would set a whole week aside to eat unleavened bread? Well, it's to remember the difficulties of slavery in Egypt and the great acts of God in history to release them from this bondage in Egypt. In fact, part of the story of Passover is told in the book of Deuteronomy. When in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're told that when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, once 
We were slaves, this famous phrase in Hebrew, avadim hainu, once we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. And so ever since the first Passover, when they were leaving Egypt, Jewish people have been meeting, especially gathering their children around the table to tell about this amazing feat whereby God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Once we were slaves. In fact, in the book of Exodus, which, of course, the Exodus refers to that exiting from Egyptian bondage and slavery in Egypt, we read about this in chapter 12. Now this day, the day of Passover, will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. In other words, you were slaves, but now you're not, and so you're going to rejoice over that. This is a happy holiday. It's a feast. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day unto the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now you think about that. That's kind of a huge threat. I mean, you mean if we eat leaven for seven days, it's like you're no longer an Israelite? And God said, yeah, that's it. This is a very serious setting aside of leaven. And so houses were searched for leaven. In fact, as holidays grow, new traditions seem to be added. And one of the common elements of adding to these biblical commands and saying, well, how shall we celebrate? For instance, you might do that with Thanksgiving celebrations, not in the Bible. You might do that with, Christ, uh, with Christmas celebrations, not in the Bible. You might do that with Easter celebrations, not commanded in the Bible. But every year our family makes, and we eat, and we do, you know, these are celebrations. And it's okay to have celebrations. So as people were celebrating what God had done, and this commandment to the Israelites about not having any leaven in their homes, it became traditional for a thorough cleansing. And by the way, notice what season of the year it is. You might say pollen season in North Carolina, but it's spring. Spring cleaning seems to be biblical. Right out of the text. You're to rid your house of leaven. And as people clean their houses, they're cleaning out for the ancient Israelites, especially looking for pieces of leaven. And this tradition that has come has used a wooden spoon and a feather to go around looking for little pieces of leaven that after all the official cleaning has been done, the mother of the house will hide 70 pieces on purpose, like little pieces of a cracker or a cookie or you know, bread that contains leaven. And then the father and the children will go around and scoop up every piece of leaven placing it in a white cloth, every little piece, and afterwards take that white cloth full of all the pieces of leaven outside the house and ceremonially burn it to symbolize now this house is kosher for Passover. It is completely free of leaven. Well, at that, I want to invite my middle child, Atalia, to come up and light the candles because this is right where the meal and the celebration of the Passover begins. I've asked her to read it in Hebrew. 
בגלל שהיא מדברת כל כך טובה בשפה הזאת, because she's our best Hebrew speaker in the family, so she will give us the traditional Hebrew greeting, uh, or rather blessing, for the lighting of the candles. So as the meal begins, this meal with a message, we're reminded then that you might notice this plate here. And the plate will have all of these traditional elements on it because each part of the meal, which by the way, the meal itself is called a seder. The word seder in Hebrew means order. So this is not one of those meals where, hey, just come over anytime, you know, we're going to start at noon and then stay all day and eat if you want. No, no, no. This is everyone eating the same thing at the same time because it's ceremonially observing the storyline of the telling of the story of the Exodus. So each item on the plate has a certain significance, whether it's the horseradish, which you should all you know, make sure you take some time afterward to see what happens to you when you take a big bite of this. Um, it might cause some tears and to go with the tear concept you have the parsley which um, well this green green leafy parsley is going to be dipped in salt water salt water a reminder of the tears of the Israelites as they were under Egyptian bondage and then thankfully there's also the haroset the haroset is this beautiful wonderful after you've cried, you'll want some of this. A mixture of apples and honey and, and uh, cinnamon and nuts and so forth. It's, it's great. And for some, they even take a piece of the matzah or unleavened bread and uh, make a little sandwich with the horseradish and the uh, haroset, this sweet mixture. And together, it's like a reminder that even in bitter times, God is able to make our lives sweet by his grace. Now, the bitter herbs, of course, are a reminder then that uh, things were rough in Egypt. It was a time of misery in which the Israelites were crying out to God for deliverance. The shank bone, by the way, it is also on the plate to remind the Israelites that in order for them to escape God's judgment, the ten plagues that fell upon the Egyptians, as, Herod, as a Pharaoh hardened his heart and consistently said no to God and to Moses about God's command to let his people go. Well, the final plague of the Exodus was the death of the firstborn. But you could avoid having the firstborn child and the firstborn animal in your flocks and so forth die if your home had on the doorposts of the house the blood of a lamb sprinkled. And in fact, the parsley has an additional reminder that this parsley reminds us of the hyssop, which was dipped in the blood and then sprinkled on the doorposts of the house. All of these symbolic elements are concluded with an egg. An egg 
why an egg? Well, maybe it's because, well, Christians have it at Easter. Maybe we need one at the Passover. No, uh, people have debated about the egg in the Passover meal, but at least we would say this egg is a roasted egg. The roasted egg is a reminder both of the roundness of the egg and that this celebration comes around every year, but also a reminder that this was through much affliction that God brought. Remember, a symbol of an egg is going to be a symbol of like new life. That God brought them out of this bondage through much affliction. So the egg. We have these several things identified on this plate. And we have one final item, and that is the afikomen. In a beautiful little pillowcase, which holds the matzah for Passover, often embroidered and made quite nice. There are three openings. Perhaps you can see. There's the first, and here's the second. And then finally, you know, you have three pieces, three places where the unleavened bread is found in here. It is traditional to take the middle matzah from this matzah tash, or little pillowcase for the matzah, to break it in half, and then to wrap up one in a white cloth and hide it away for later. Because the word afikomen, the only Greek word in the telling of the Exodus story, the afikomen means that which comes after. And so we'll come back to this after, after the meal. The Seder meal I mentioned, based on this word Seder, which means order, goes in a certain order, and it is uh, illustrated for us through this booklet called a Haggadah. If you can't remember that word, it's just like Haggadah, eat the Passover every year, uh, maybe something like that. So Haggadah actually comes from a word which means to tell, and it tells the story of the Passover. It's not a very difficult thing to do. You just read right through it every year. You don't have to memorize everything, and there's something that everybody can take their turn and read and so forth, and you go through the booklet, and different communities have different booklets. Uh, there are different types of art, uh, in, and there are different languages. Sometimes they will use some Aramaic and Hebrew blessings, even if the people don't normally speak uh, these languages, but the Haggadah. The Haggadah guides readers through the story of the Exodus with several important themes, like the story of slavery in Egypt and Moses is God's deliverer, and the ten plagues that we mentioned before. In fact, something that perhaps many of us might read right by in our Bibles are the four promises of God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, whereby four times the Lord promises that he will do something for the Israelites back when they were all in bondage in Egypt. He says... Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Together, I will, you can say it, ready? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second promise, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So these four I will promises help guide the community in the telling of the Exodus and are often illustrated in the Haggadah booklet 
with four cups. The four cups of Passover then remind us of these four promises. Look at that text again. The first promise, I will bring you out, relates to the first cup of the Seder. And as the cup is held and everyone has a cup at their place setting, everyone says the blessing, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, and drinks from this cup as part of the telling of how God promised he would bring out the Israelites from Egypt. In other words, he would bring them out and set them aside. This is what the word sanctification means, to be set apart for God. The cup of sanctification. The second I will promise says from God that I will deliver you. How would he do that? He would do so through ten plagues. I like to think of the fact that God did not simply tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no. In fact, he said, that is Pharaoh, something much more offensive. He asked a question like this. Who is this God that I should obey him? I think that's the Egyptian word chutzpah. Um, who is this God that I should obey him? Well, as an educator, I've been told that, you know, maybe I should tell my classes in order to promote more interaction, like, feel free to ask questions. And I might be told to tell them, there are no, what kind of questions? There are no stupid questions. This, however, might be a biblical exception to the rule. Who is this God that I should obey him? But the Lord is a much more patient educator than I am, I will confess. So he gave Pharaoh 10 audiovisual illustrations to help answer his sincere question. Who is this God that I should fear him? You call them plagues, but I like to think of them as a teacher, as, uh, you know, audiovisual illustrations. He answered Pharaoh's question, who is this God? that I should fear him. And it was through this cup of judgment. In reciting the ten plagues, the judgments are associated with this part of the meal where God would deliver. In fact, these ten plagues, Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, tells us that God says to Moses, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In other words, Pharaoh was kind of asking, why should I listen to your God? I mean, we've got gods of our own. And God answers his question to say, well, let me tell you about the relative lack of power that your God has. It's been observed that all of the plagues of Egypt were actually, just like this verse says, against the gods of Egypt. Let me list them for you. Perhaps you've seen a list of the plagues. You'll remember that the Nile River was turned to blood, but did you know that of all the things the Egyptians worshipped, the thing which was a symbol of life to the Egyptians more than anything else was the Nile River itself? I mean, think about this. When there was a famine in the land of Canaan, when Abram, Isaac, and then later Jacob, and then later Jacob's sons, who sold their brother Joseph into 
slavery in Egypt, where did they go when the land of Canaan came under a drought and there was a famine in the land? Where did they go to get some food? They went to Egypt. Because Egypt, even if it wasn't raining, always has the Nile River. And the Nile River was spread further than its banks by various canals and systems of irrigation so that people could enjoy more agricultural lands and more fertility for their crops. Egypt, if you wanted to be a farmer in the ancient world, the number one place to have your farm ground was in Egypt. You always had water. Except when the water of the Nile was turned to blood. This was the first plague against the Egyptians. Their god, Hapi, the god of the Nile, when Pharaoh asked that question, can you imagine? Who is this god that I should fear him? And the Nile turned to blood? Well, whoever that god is, he's not happy. He's not happy anymore, anyway. Uh, the Nile has turned to blood. Hey, how about this next deity called Heka, the frog goddess of fruitfulness? You might think about why frogs are associated with fruitfulness. Have you seen tadpoles either in a stream or in a pond? There just seem to be hundreds of them everywhere, a symbol of fertility and life. But then God brought the plague of frogs upon the Egyptians. Think of it. What they worship, they now despise. There are frogs everywhere. They're being overrun by frogs. Who is this God that I should fear him? Is it the frog goddess? I'm thinking maybe they said Hecka, no. Uh, not Hecka the frog goddess. How about the next one? Seth, the keeper of the earth. Apparently, gnats and lice were filling Egypt until like Pharaoh was like, ah, this is terrible. You see, they began to despise that which they once worshipped. They worshipped the sacred gadfly, Hephra. And so God sent them flies so that they no longer worshipped flies and insects. They, they despised that which they worshipped. And you can keep going on through the death of cattle and boils on their bodies and hail coming from the sky and the locusts and the darkness. By the way, I like to think, who was the sun god in Egypt? Ra. Ra. But I like to call him Ray. Because the sun's rays, you know, it's like God said, lights out. Raw. Who is this God that I should fear him? It's not the sun God. And one other aspect of Egyptian religion was their state religion by which they believed that the Pharaoh himself was a deity to be worshipped. Who is this God that I should fear him? By the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn son, who would be the next Pharaoh, it was proof. Pharaoh, you are not God. And with the final plague, the death of the firstborn, we have the Passover. In fact, if we were to find the Passover, this term comes from the Hebrew word Pesach, literally meaning to jump over, and signifies when the Lord's judgment passed over the Israelites' houses, they had blood on the doorposts. The Israelites were allowed to go free after the 10th plague and thus celebrate this freedom with the Passover. But of course, that's because they had the blood applied to the doorposts of their house. Well, we've looked at the two cups, the cup of sanctification, setting Israel apart. I will take you out 
from Egypt. We've looked at the second cup. I will um, remove you with this, these judgments, the cup of judgment, and then the meal. This is when the meal is enjoyed and all of those elements about which we spoke are ceremonially dipped and eaten and recall the story of the Exodus by experientially you know, partaking of this meal with a message. And at the end of the meal, once the wonderful items have been enjoyed, there's a little search for that which comes afterwards. In fact, to illustrate that for us, I have had a friend hide a piece of unleavened bread somewhere in the room, somewhere in the middle of the room, somewhere near you, is wrapped in white, a piece of unleavened bread. Can you find it? If you can, I have a little prize for you. Start looking now, quick. Oh, did you find it that quickly? Come on up here. That was fast. And, and what's your name? Jacob, what a great biblical name. I would like to give you, Jacob, as a note of congratulations, this handy-dandy pen from Shepherd's Theological Seminary. You know, it's amazing. You have redeemed the Ophic Omen. Now, my kids are probably thinking, that was cheap. But, you know, that's the best I could do at, at a little bit of notice. And now, the finding of the Ophic Omen is so significant because, again, it comes at the end of the meal. It's that which comes afterwards. It should be observed that all matzah, this unleavened bread, is both striped, take a look at it, and it is pierced. I don't know if you can see it from there, but I'm going to attempt to uh, shine this light behind it. Can you see that all matzah is striped and it's pierced? There's a little hole and it's burning right now, but uh, we'll fix that. All matzah is striped and pierced, which makes it a perfect reminder about what the prophet Isaiah says about the coming Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Perhaps it was for this reason that Jesus is eating with the disciples in that meal in the upper room in Luke 22 and reminds them with a cup and with the bread that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us he took the bread after supper. What bread do you think that was? I think it's the omen. It's that which comes after the meal. Have you noticed? Most people even if you're eating at Olive Garden and you've had all those great breadsticks at the beginning, most people are not saying after the main entree has arrived, can we have more bread? I mean, after you've eaten the entree, you've probably eaten 10 breadsticks already. You're not asking for more bread at the end, maybe dessert, but not, not more bread. But Jesus picks up this bread, this unleavened bread, to paint a picture of his sinless body, which Leaven was representing in this case. Now we come to the third cup. It's called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption is raised after the meal. 
And again, God is blessed. And we say, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This third cup, the cup of redemption, comes from the third I will promise in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I will redeem you. In fact, notice how the text says God would redeem the Israelites. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I found this smiting scene in Egyptian art, which actually, I went to Egypt on one of many occasions and saw a scene like this huge plastered on the side of a great Egyptian temple. They were familiar with smiting scenes. Their pharaohs often were portrayed as having the hair of the head of their enemies clenched in one hand while a big whacker tool on the other hand, and he was about to smite them. For the Israelites to hear that, no, 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 God is going to smite the Egyptians, and he is going to deliver them and redeem them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, they knew what that was. But now God was going to be the one redeeming them. It's at this time, after the Afikomen and the third cup, the cup of redemption, that it is traditional, as you're reading through the Haggadah, the story of the Passover, to invite one of the young kids to go open a door and to look out that door to see if Elijah the prophet has come to be our guest this year at Passover. Eliyahu Hanavi, as he's called, Elijah the prophet. Why would they do that? Because Malachi <clears throat> promised, in fact, God promised through Malachi, and Malachi in our English Bibles, chapter 4, verse 5, but in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 3, verse 23, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So somehow, Elijah was to be an announcer of the coming day of the Lord. In the New Testament, we're told that a certain person fulfills the role of Elijah as the precursor to Jesus' ministry. Remember who that is? John the Baptist. He is the forerunner to announce the coming of the Messiah. And now we come to the fourth and final cup, the cup of praise. It's the cup of praise because here we can praise God for what all of this symbolism means. In other words, he's going to take the Israelites to be his own people, and he will be their God, and they will know that he is the Lord God. In other words, why would they need to know? Because Pharaoh had even asked, who is this God that I should be? I'll tell you who he is. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of Israel. That's how he's announced in the New Testament, the one who sent his Messiah. In fact, we want to think about several New Testament allusions to Passover. In other words, when we think of what the New Testament might say about Passover, we're reminded right away about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how John the Baptist looked out and saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Further, we're also told that in the New Testament, forgiveness comes by the blood of the Lamb. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover. Have you ever thought of him that way? Who is Jesus? He's our Passover lamb. 
This is how Paul thought of him, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is also how Peter thought of him in 1 Peter chapter 118 when he speaks of the sprinkling of blood as of a lamb as a spotless lamb with no blemish. Jesus' blood is that which was given for us. Further, as we recall the issue of slavery leading up to the Passover, Egyptian bondage, we're reminded in the New Testament that we as believers in Jesus before our salvation were in the slave market of sin. We were in bondage to our sin. But there's one way to have freedom. It's by coming to faith in Jesus, the promised Messiah. He gives salvation or redemption. He gives freedom from bondage. And in so many ways, his death should be understood as that which buys us out of the slave market of sin. And finally, when Jesus was with his disciples in Luke 22 that we looked at earlier, Paul records this event in 1 Corinthians 11 and tells us that he took the cup after supper, the cup of redemption, and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until when? Until he comes again. You know what that implies? That when you're with the Lord in eternity, you won't be celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're only doing this now, in this lifetime, until he comes again. Because once he comes again, you know what will remind us? That he paid the price for your sin? It won't be the cup and the bread. It will be the scars in his hands. You will see the living Lord in his glorified body. But yet he will still bear the mark of the price he paid for our redemption. But for now, we remember what he did by the Lord's Supper. So as the disciples gathered that week leading up to the moment of the crucifixion, Jesus told them, go, prepare a room so that we can have the Passover together. This is a meal with an important message. And it's actually a message that Jewish people all around this world will be gathering to celebrate this coming week. In fact, Friday evening is Arab Passover on the Jewish calendar. And for a whole week, we'll be eating unleavened bread. All of this was commanded by God for the Israelites. But it offers an amazing picture for believers in Jesus as well. The picture that is illustrated in the Passover meal, a meal with a message that ultimately pointed Israel and all the families of the earth to recognize who the God of Israel is and how he sent his son, Jesus the Messiah, to be our Passover lamb. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for some time in your word together today. Thank you for an opportunity to speak of all that Jesus has done for us by giving his life to be an atonement for sin. Lord, we thank you for this coming week in which we can recall the passion, 
the willing death of your son, but also the joy of his resurrection. We thank you and praise you in his name.